Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the former Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, whose new book, co-authored with the Nigerian former Finance Minister and Foreign Minister and economist Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, I hope I pronounced her correctly, is Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. Julia, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Can you tell me how this book came about? I mean, how did you and Ngozi get talking? And what I made you think we'll you... write a book? Uh, yeah, exactly. What made us think we'd do this crazy thing and write a book? We first met each other back in 2012 when I was Prime Minister and Ngozi came as part of the Nigerian delegation to Australia for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. But really, we got to know each other in international meetings in my time post-politics. I chaired the Global Partnership for Education. She chairs the Global Vaccine Alliance. So we ended up at any number of conferences and events together. And we got friendly. We got talking. And increasingly, we started talking about what was happening to women leaders around the world. And we'd be, you know, watching and seeing sexist treatment and we're trying to work out how systematic is this is every woman's experience a bit different or are there common themes and then when Hillary lost we finally said to each other we've got to do something about this and so that was the birth of the idea of writing the book. I mean you say Hillary losing was this kind of crystallising moment was that because you think you know things are going backwards In some ways, yes. I mean, I'm enough of an optimist to say that the general direction of travel is forward. And even in the days after Hillary lost, whilst I was quite saddened, indeed very saddened, I would have said rationally, no, the direction of travel is forward. But it was shocking enough for us to say this does require more energy, more focus, the world might slowly, slowly, slowly be getting to a better place, but we really want to quicken the pace of change, hence the book. And in the book, it's not just a treatise, it's a reported book. You know, you've two of the best connected women in the world and you've drawn on those connections. How did you go about it? Because you interview eight very eminent women, you know, leaders, world leader level women. You know, what made you choose them and how did you go about it? What did you ask them? Well, I would hope Ngozi and I brought to this lived experience and we share some of that. Uh, What in the old days we would have called pretty good Rolodexes. We know women around the world and we were able to get eight very eminent women to share their real life experience with us. And uh, hopefully we've also brought a bit of a policy analyst's or researcher's eye because we've aggregated together the global research about women and leadership. And so the main aim of the book is to take that research and to see, does it live in real life? Do women, as they go about their leadership, feel the same things that the researchers suggest they should feel? 
In terms of selecting the eight women, we wanted the book to speak more broadly than politics. And so we originally thought, should we get women from the business community, women from civil society, women from the law and so on. But we ultimately decided that the spotlight is at its whitest, hottest on women in politics. And so any lesson that could be learned from women in politics would be likely to resonate with women in other circumstances. And the lessons would be the sharpest and starkest from their experiences. But it's also, I mean, they're, they're not all, as it were, Western women. I mean, you've, cho- you've chosen, you say at one point, you chose scientifically almost. You wanted to show a, a range, didn't you? How, sort of who have you got and who do you wish you had? I know you're cross at missing out on Angela Merkel. We would have loved to have spoken to Chancellor Merkel. Unfortunately, that wasn't possible, but I do hope that she writes on gender. But we did decide that we wanted women from around the world. We wanted this to be a truly global book. Obviously, Ngozi and I are different women, me from Australian politics, her from Nigeria, and we wanted to select women with diverse experiences. So to do the roundup. Uh, from uh, your region of the world, we spoke to uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May. We spoke to the current Prime Minister of Norway, Erna Solberg. We spoke to Christine Lagarde. Obviously, she was in French politics, then went on to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and now with the European Central Bank. We couldn't miss out on Hillary Clinton, given how resonant her experiences are. We spoke to Michelle Bachelet, who was twice uh, the president of Chile. We spoke to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first woman to lead a nation in Africa from Liberia. We spoke to Joyce Bander, the second woman to lead a nation in Africa. She was president of Malawi. And from my region of the world, we spoke to Jacinta Ardern. So women from very different walks of life, very different countries and contexts. Well, what then do the women who achieve that sort of eminence have in common, did you find? And what surprised you? Well, actually, I was surprised how much was in common. I mean, when you look at these women's experiences, you know, on the first look, you would say, well, nothing is in common. You know, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who survived imprisonment, exile, death threats to end up leading a civil war a torn country to end up leading Liberia. Uh, what could she have in common with Erna Solberg, who is the second woman to lead Norway? And obviously Norway is one of the richest countries in the world. And yet when we took another look, actually uh, Erna Solberg and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf did talk about some things in common. They talked about a relentless focus on appearance and needing to deal with that and adopting strategies to deal with people's interest in what they were wearing. Uh, They talked about a focus on family structures. They talked even as leaders about being underestimated in rooms, feeling that they constantly had to prove themselves. They talked about walking on a very narrow tightrope of showing enough strength to be seen to be, you know, tough enough to lead. Uh, but having enough warmth and empathy that people wouldn't find them unlikable and have an adverse reaction against them. So one thing that really stood out for me in putting the book together is how universal the experiences of sexism are. Now, that doesn't mean that they're at the same degree of sting and amplitude in every place, 
Obviously, that differs and differs profoundly, but the manifestations are more common than you would initially think. Yeah, I was interested I mean, in how much you think they do vary between countries, because Theresa May, in your conversations, she quite often sort of says, actually, I don't think I was being discriminated against as a woman. She sort of plays it down. You obviously famously found yourself on the end of a great deal of sexism in Australian politics. I mean, is Australian politics more sexist than British politics, do you think? I don't think more sexist, no. I think uh, maybe our political culture is more rough and tumble than yours, even though we got the institutions of our politics from you, of course. Uh, And I'm uh, prepared to make that judgment call based on the reactions that I've seen from British politicians who have come and visited the Australian Parliament and watched our question time and walked away shaking their heads going, oh my heavens, what on earth was that? Uh, so we, uh, we play it tough and uh, none of these uh, niceties of Prime Minister's question times. In Australia, the Prime Minister goes to question time every day and takes what comes and often what comes is pretty hard hitting. Uh, so I think maybe our sexism is more out there in our culture, but I don't think that there's a fundamental difference, no. And this business of rough and tumble being a kind of part of politics, I mean, that's itself almost a kind of gendered or traditionally gendered way of seeing things as a sort of scrapping as being a male thing. Do you think there is something that is actually, it's set up most political systems in a, a quite male way? Or is that to say... It's just that women need to play the game that way. Look, I think a mix of all of those things. I mean, I am not a believer that men and women's brains are somehow inherently different. And we unpack a fair bit of that in the book and we end up concluding that a lot of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus sort of stuff is neurosexism, not neuroscience. But we do recognise that men and women have been socialised differently and that institutions of long-standing and long history, like parliaments, have grown their conventions in times when this was a male game, when women weren't there. Having said all of that, I, as a politician, thought it was very important to show that a woman could stand in as adversarial a place as our question time and dominate it, you know, bend it to your will, And I didn't do that every day I was Prime Minister, but I did it some days. And I think that's the best almost any Prime Minister could say for themselves in terms of their track record in question time. So I don't think you can um, somehow bake the sexism in and say women can never thrive in adversarial institutions. But I also recognise that because of socialisation, because women tend to be you know, more conflict adverse, more prepared to negotiate and find solutions, that that rough and tumble, to use the terminology that we started with, does alienate a lot of women and that they would like to see politics done differently. And I look at Jacinda Ardern and it's interesting to see that she is the third woman to lead her country is trying to find a way to do politics differently with kindness very much foregrounded. I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and egg question, but do you think you need to try and change the institutions and the styles of politics in order to accommodate, if you like, a socialisation that's going to take longer to go away? Or that 
it's simply a question that women, when they get out front in politics, need to learn to play the game that way as it is. I mean, you clearly did it that way. Yes, I did. And maybe I'm the transition model and the the women of the future uh, will be much more trying to change the rules of the system. Maybe we're in that kind of progression of it being a male institution of women who uh, came in like me and largely accepted the rules of the institution, then seeking to thrive within it. And then a generation of women who will try and completely knock the rules of the game around. Maybe that's the evolution we're in. I think that there will always be some conflict baked into politics because at the end of the day, politics is about a clash of values, a clash of policies and people who've got strong beliefs in what their nation should do next, what the world should do next, will always want to come in and have the argument. But on the styles of the argument, I think that there's more reasons than gender and diversity to be looking now at the institutions of politics. It's clear that in Western democracies around the world, people are increasingly alienated, frustrated with politics as it's currently played. So I think that there's an agenda here about democratic renewal, as well as one around better gender diversity and better diversity generally. Yeah. What was your experience? I mean, one of the things that interests me in the books, you say if I had my time again, I'd do it slightly differently. Why was that? Why do you feel you'd make gender a bigger thing earlier on? Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, when I started being Prime Minister, I didn't get a crystal ball issued to me uh, with uh, many of the other things that came with being Prime Minister. I would have liked one. But I assumed when I first became Prime Minister that It was just so obvious that I was the first woman to do the job. I didn't need to wander around saying to people, oh, do you realise I'm the first woman to do the job? I mean, all of the headlines, you know, all of it was about being the first woman to do the job. And then I thought over time that will become less intriguing to people. It will become less of the way in which my prime ministership is seen and people will go back to evaluating me in the normal way that we evaluate politicians in Australia, which is never particularly kindly, but it's our structures and we're all used to them. What I actually found was the longer I was Prime Minister, the more hard arguments the government had to have, and we particularly had a ferocious argument about creating an economy-wide emissions trading scheme to deal with carbon that the gendered insult, gendered characterisations of my leadership became more and more the order of the day. So then I did regret that I hadn't called out earlier the first manifestations of sexism, that I hadn't assumed that they would basically exit the scene, that instead I'd tackled it head on earlier on so that it didn't get as bad as it got later on. And when you were sort of scrapping at the dispatch box. Did you feel, obviously, having been socialised in the way you'd been socialised, that you were sort of putting on a persona, that you'd sort of put on your armour before you'd deliver a speech or stand at PMQs? Oh, very much so, but I don't necessarily think that's a gendered experience in terms of question time. You know, I mean, no, no one in real life conducts themselves the way that politicians conduct themselves at question time, whether it's your um, 
you know, the Prime Minister's question time or our version of it. You know, it's a very stereotyped, mannered way of behaving. And so I think everybody pulls on a bit of a role and a bit of armour to go into that. And I don't really think in terms of gender that, you know, the biggest set of issues that we've got to overcome are about the dynamics of question time. I actually think there's two far broader fields that we need to look at. One is structural, which is because politics has been built up around the pattern of men's lives and men men at the time that it was routine for men in politics to have a non-working spouse, that political structures have not easily adapted to the rhythm of women's lives and the balance of work and family life. And second, uh, we've all got uh, sexist stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains. Uh, The global research shows this very, very clearly. And until we name them, analyse them and get them out of all of our heads, then we are at risk of putting extra burdens on the shoulders of women leaders. And so we need to work our way through that. And the book is a contribution to showing what those stereotypes are and how we need to defeat them. I mean, actually, that does raise a question I wondered about. How much do you think that what you're talking about in this book, as it were, scales in the sense that the women you're talking about are all exceptional? They're occupying absolutely you know, 1% of 1% jobs at the top of nations or institutions, how much the lessons that you draw from them apply and, as it were, trickle down to women overall and throughout, you know, throughout the world who are in less, less exceptional women in less exceptional circumstances? I think women are only viewed as exceptional when you take a snapshot of one section of their lives, you know, at the top of their game. But what we do in the book is we look at early influences and each woman's pathway to power. And if you look at that, then there are many years, many decades in which these women would not have been seen to be exceptional. And I put myself in that very profoundly. You know, I'm a daughter from a migrant family. We migrated from the UK to Australia. I went to the local government schools. There was nothing exceptional about me or exceptional about us in my early days. And that was true of much of my life. So because we take the story all of the way through, I think that there are many moments in these women's journeys that women in other walks of life, women who are at much earlier stages of their career will say, yes, that's exactly what happened to me or that's exactly how I feel about it. And then even at the height of their powers, there are moments that these women share that I think will resonate. You know, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf talks about, as president, going to meetings with presidents across Africa and still feeling differential attention and still feeling like she wasn't fully accepted in that room. And I think that there will be, you know, women who are in the first days of their career walking into the first work rooms they'll ever walk into who will go, yep, I know exactly what that feels like. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues that in terms of increasing representation of women all over, you know, when you've got 
fantastic number of statistics about the underrepresentation of women in boardrooms, in Parliament, in all around the world, is this question of how much is affirmative action something that's necessary? Because, you know, lots of people feel it's a kind of cleft stick, because if you have quotas or something like that, people go, oh, she only got the job because she's a woman. And if you don't, arguably nothing changes. How do you square that? What do you feel about affirmative action and pushing women forward by fiat, if you like? I am of the generation that fought for an affirmative action rule in the Australian Labor Party. We did that in the 1990s. And there's just no doubt that it's been effective and that we are a better and stronger political party because of it. In terms of the effectiveness, if you go back to the days we adopted our affirmative action rule and you looked at the National Parliament then, both the Labor Party and the Conservative side of politics were around about 13 14% women in their parliamentary team, so dreadful. All these years later, the Labor Party is pretty close to half-half, and the Conservative side of politics that said no, they would not do a target or a quota, they would rely on networking and training and those sorts of things, have clawed their way up to about a quarter of their team being women. So the Labor Party's affirmative action rule worked. And when people say, well, you know, this means it's counter to merit or anything like that, I think they're incredibly flawed arguments. If you believe, as I do, that merit is equally distributed between the sexes and you see any team, whether that's a parliamentary team, a corporate board, a judicial bench or anything else that isn't around half men, half women, then there's got to be something that is stopping women of merit coming through. And why wouldn't you want those women of merit there as well? Uh, So ultimately, I think fixing gender diversity and diversity more broadly enriches and strengthens teams. It does not detract from the merit principle. Do you feel there's a point at which, obviously, that's a transitional thing, and you go, okay, at this stage, we've got a system where roughly it's 50-50, you know, the bars to entry have been broken down. Right now we remove quotas. I think it just gets to a stage, and this has increasingly been the experience within the Labor Party, it just gets to a stage where it's kind of not that relevant anymore. You know, when we first had affirmative action, people would have been out with their sheets, oh, are we okay with the affirmative action rule? Have we got this right or is there a problem? Now people get around with the pre-selections and then, you know, look back and go, yeah, of course it's all right. Um, So, yes, it, it gets to a stage where it's so baked in that you don't have to specifically focus on it any longer. I was very interested to read how you describe your own political making. And, you know, you started out student unions and you describe, and it's an old story about, you know, feminism being split. And, you know, there was a sort of separatist, women separatist movements. And you were you were on the other side, on the integration side. Now, we've got another split in feminism between women who argue that there's a conflict between the rights of natal women and trans women. Where do you stand on that issue? We talk in the book about how it would be truly wonderful if when we looked at the councils of the world, whether that was a meeting of the UN or the G20 or the G7 or any of those um, structures, that you could look at who is leading and see the full range and full diversity of humankind and everybody was represented. 
that's not where we are now. And so we've done this analysis around gender. But of course, it's not the only form of discrimination. And I hope that, you know, there are many, many, many contributions to uh, bringing out all of the other forms of discrimination that need to be tackled so that politics and leadership generally can draw on everybody's talents and abilities and not artificially exclude people. In terms of the threads of feminism that we talk about in the book, I mean, my university uh, career, I started at university in the late 1970s and was there in the 1980s. And there was a very lively debate in feminist uh, circles on campus then between being within the structures and changing them from within as opposed to um, having women's only spaces and, you know, women who wanted to completely change structures to move away from any pyramid-style power structures to more collective structures. I was on one side of that, and I guess my life's work has been on one side of that, but I think we're immeasurably strengthened by the fact that there's a diversity of view and different people employ different strategies for change. Just to reiterate the initial question, there is a good faith argument going on between people who are on a sort of progressive side of things. Some people argue that the rights of trans women through self-identification and so on are in conflict with the rights of natal women and their ability to describe themselves as a political class. I'm wondering where you stand on that issue. I actually think it's flawed. I actually think it's flawed to set this up as a choice A or choice B. I think there's a, we're all still thinking it through, working through, there's plenty of dialogue to be had and it should be very inclusive and respectful dialogue. Fair enough. Now, I'm someone who takes a special interest in rhetoric, so I can't not ask you about the misogyny speech and you'll probably <laughs> roll your eyes, but that speech seemed really crafted and structured. And I've read you say somewhere, you know what, it kind of just came out. Did you know that you were going to deliver this tub thumper? (laughs) I I didn't even know I was going to deliver a speech. So no, absolutely not. I uh, walked into what should have been question time, one of these uh, question times we've been talking about so much. And I knew that the theme of the day would be sexism because there was a political scandal running about the Speaker of the House of Representatives who had been unveiled as having sent some very crude and sexist text messages and obviously you know it is the government that supports the Speaker and so the government which I led had put this man into the Speaker's office though we could not have known about the text messages at the time we did that. So I expected that the theme of question time would be around sexism and hypocrisy, trying to charge the government and me in particular as hypocritical because of the man we'd supported to be Speaker. So I went in prepared for that and the preparation was to take in some key quotes of the uh, leader of the opposition, Tony Abbott, that were sexist, and I was intending in answering questions to flourish these quotes around. But as it happened, when we got in there, instead of having question time, the leader of the opposition moved a motion to censure the government, and so we went straight into that debate. And so the speech that's come to be known as the misogyny speech is the speech I gave in reply to his speech moving that motion. 
And so I wrote down some uh, notes to give me a sense of the structure of the speech and then gave it. Well, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. There's so much anaphora in it. I mean, it's really it's quite a thing to improvise. And when you sat down, I mean, did you sort of think, I've reduced Tony Abbott to a smouldering ruin? Because <laughs> you kind of did. Uh... <laughs> No, I mean, I knew that it was a speech that had landed with considerable force in the House of Representatives. I mean, you spend enough time, I've spent spent enough years by then in Parliament to know when a speech has, you know, really hit the other side hard as opposed to one that's just run of the mill. So I knew it had hit home, but I didn't have any anticipation about it beyond how it had landed in the chamber. So I knew that the people in the chamber had felt the force of it. I expected that the journalists would write it up, some of them, you know, saying it was a good speech, some of them saying it was a bad speech, you know, such is the nature of uh, political reporting. But I didn't expect it to go any further than that. Right. Now, I know we aren't supposed to be talking about current day politics, but I have to ask because he's about to be made a trade advisor. Um, <laughs> Do you think the aforementioned smouldering ruin will have anything to contribute to Britain's trade deals with Europe? <laughs> you won't be surprised that I'm leaving all of that to the uh, government and the people of the UK to sort out. It's for you to work out who you want to be your trade advisor, not for me to do it. And anything that I've needed to say about Tony Abbott, I said when I was in politics and most particularly in the speech that we've just been talking about, so <laughs> I don't need to add. That's very diplomatic. Can I ask you, your relationship with Ngozi, you know, what did you find the points at which your perspectives differed? We worked through lots of things. Uh, I mean, mostly we were in agreement. From the early days, we were in agreement about the fundamental nature of the book, about the research and the women's lives, we then had to work through the structuring of it and we worked through a variety of um, ways about best structuring the book. And then as we wrestled the content, really uh, I would say the main discussion between us was about handling issues around race and intersectionality, what it meant for Ngozi to have intersected in the political world as a black woman, what it meant for Ellen and for Joyce and how we should write about that. I mean, they, the, the... So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that, I should just be clear, I wouldn't put that in the sense that we had different views, but Ngozi had the far more sophisticated lived experience view. So I learned from her as we wrote. Yeah. Now, you do talk in the book about a divide between, if you like, intellectual or kind of head feminism and a sort of more spiritual or personal emotional one. You talk, you talk about being kind of uncomfortable with that divide and feeling it, you know, sometimes you're on the wrong side of it. How do you kind of um, reconcile it, do you think? Yeah, I do talk in the prologue, both Ngozi and I give our histories in some ways and the perspectives that we've brought to the book. And I do recount in that my journey in student politics, awakening to these debates about feminism, how that all fueled my political activism and how I came out of that very much as a can-do style of politician that I took with me from those early experiences, a drive to get things done 
and including getting things done on women's equality. And so I was always someone who was motivated to make a difference on women's equality. But it was like having a checklist. Yes, got that done. Okay, got the next thing done. Oh, right, got the next thing done. Rather than feeling some of the more emotional ties that I think there can be when women come together around a cause and celebrate each other's achievements. And when I look back on that, I don't know whether the structures of politics mean you kind of flatten the emotion down and just put your head down and get it done, or whether it's simply a time thing, you don't have the luxury of celebrating achievements or just hanging together, and I've got more time to do that now than I had when I was in active politics. But I do feel a more emotional strain around my feminism now than I did when I was in the seat as Deputy Prime Minister or Prime Minister or any of the other political seats that I held before that. That was a lovely detail. I think when one of your colleagues loses their seat and you shed a tear, and it's you're going soft, Gillard. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, it, it was actually a, a happy occasion. So it was when a great friend of mine, a woman who'd worked in my office with me post my time as Prime Minister, gave her first speech as an incoming senator and I went to watch it be given and did... Um, feel emotional and was chided by a former colleague of mine who's still in Parliament as going soft. Now, that business of, which is, you know, we could say maybe part of of the way women are socialised, you know, we're not going to be essentialists, but of being more emotionally labile, of being more sociable, of being more kind of empathetic and responsive and all those things. I mean, do you think that means that the way that women do rhetoric is different, that the way women give speeches in politics you know, is different? In some ways, yes, but I think that's not necessarily because women choose to do it differently. If women had every choice um, and didn't have the sort of strictures that come with socialisation, I don't know whether it would be so different. But I think it's different now because we see very clearly from the research and the lived experience of these women that women who gave speeches in a very male style, women who were directive, commanding, clearly ambitious, women who spoke like that would generate a very adverse reaction. And so I think women learn early on to give their political contributions or public contributions in a different style, Uh, one that foregrounds the team, one that foregrounds uh, why things are being done in the interests of others. You often hear women describe themselves as lucky, you know, I've got to this position because I've been lucky, not because I've been good at it. You know, all of those rhetorical devices tend to come into play because women are picking their way on this narrow path between being seen as strong enough to lead but still warm enough to be likeable. Yeah, Mrs Thatcher famously took speech lessons to lower her voice. Do you think that's, that's something that still would apply or have we moved a bit since then? Because obviously she wanted to be sound a bit more commanding. Yeah, I think we've probably moved a bit but not as much as we should have. And I'm, you know, sure that when 
TV studios are thinking about the next presenters, you know, the the people who are going to bring you the nightly news or the allocation of stories between what gets presented by the male anchor and the female anchor. I'm sure that there's still some of this in the system where people think that male voices are more commanding. There's a lot of talk about glass ceilings. I hadn't come across the phrase glass cliff until this book. What's a glass cliff? (laughs) Yeah, we do end up saying uh, there's a hell of a lot of glass. So the glass ceiling uh, people would be familiar with, certainly Hillary Clinton talked about bumping her head on one of those high, hard glass ceilings. The glass cliff is a trackable phenomenon that women are more likely to be offered leadership roles when things are going badly. This is particularly known from the corporate world, that if a business is going well, then, you know, you might as well get a CEO who's a fair bit like the current CEO and the current CEO is a man. If a business is going badly, then corporate boards say, let's shake things up. And that's when they will perhaps appoint their first woman. And this all came to the fore because of an article in the UK that was published which said that women CEOs are correlated with falling share prices. But when researchers looked at that, it was the other way round. Falling share prices was correlated with the appointment of female CEOs. Uh, so that, that is the glass cliff. Then we also talk about the glass labyrinth. So yes, much glass. And we use that to try and describe this pathway journey that we talked about earlier, that we aren't in this book simply trying to talk about what happens when you're a woman who's trying to move from being deputy CEO to CEO or deputy political leader to political leader. We're trying to identify every point in a woman's journey where she was treated differently and lesser. Well, with all that glass, it's been smashing to talk to you. Julia Gillard, (laughs) thank you very much indeed for your time.